Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 8. You can follow in your Bible or in the um, bulletin as well. And this is the, uh, the part that follows right after the prologue, which we looked at the last couple of weeks, and entering now into the greeting of uh, this letter. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and dive into God's word for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your, your waking us this morning to come into your house and to hear your call to worship, to sing your praises, and to confess all that we are before you and to receive your words of reassurance, and now to feed on your word. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would feed on it, and, and the seeds of this word would be sown upon our hearts, and that they would bear fruit, and that we would go beyond just hearing with our physical ears and our intellect, and let this, let this change us and shape us and satisfy us uh, in our souls. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and um, we're entering now into the greeting section, like I mentioned. And remember, most letters to the churches, the early churches, they, um, they opened up with the greeting. And uh, this greeting is when usually the apostles identify themselves and identify who they're writing to. But John, in this book, they open up with, uh, he opens up with the prologue. A prologue that had allusions to the Old Testament and, and to the words of Jesus. And that's meant to keep us grounded in Scripture from the very first verse. As we, as we approach this book, it's important that we read it and interpret it according to the allusions that are here and the references that are made to, to the Old Testament Scriptures and not according to our modern-day experiences. Looking at Scripture through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of our modern-day experiences. And that's what the prologue established for us. And now we come to um, the greeting. And in this greeting, we're going to look at three very important things that um, uh, we can learn. Uh, first is something really important about the audience of this letter. Second, something very important about who God is and what his will is. And third, uh, something important about how we are to live in the here and now. Okay, So something about the audience, something about God and his will and something about how we are to live in the here and now. So first, um, 
about the audience of this letter. Okay. Uh, and this is the first thing we get in our passage today in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay. Now, be- before a lot of you get excited and start shouting out your names of your motherland, this is not the Asia that you would think of you know, when you think of Asia. Uh, this is referring to Asia Minor in the ancient time, which is the region surrounding modern-day Turkey. And John is writing, it says, to the seven churches that are in that area. And that's really interesting, and here's why. The, the number seven. Uh, numbers play a huge role in the book of Revelation. Um, the number seven, you can say, is John's favorite number among those, those numbers. It's a number that he uses to represent something in its fullness, completion, or uh, fulfillment. And that's, that's, that itself is another illusion of a sort because it's derived from the seven days of creation, the, the seven sprinkling of um, blood that completes the, the, the act of atonement in Leviticus, the seven days of circling the walls of Jericho for a complete victory. All of these were occasions where seven represented completeness and, and wholeness. And John is using it here in the same way in Revelation. Seven churches in Asia. So most uh, commentators consider this to be a reference to the whole church, the the global church. Uh, Not just church in that local context, but all throughout history, the seven churches. Um, At the same time, uh, it's also addressing, like if you look at chapters 2 and 3, you'll find John is, is addressing these seven specific churches by name. But at the end of each of those addresses, what we will find is he closes each of those um, with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to all the churches. That's how he closes each of those sections that he uses to address the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to all the churches. Okay? So point being, this, this is addressed to the, to the seven immediate churches in that time, but it is also addressed to all the churches. So who is the intended audience of, of Revelation? Is it, is, it the, is it the early church or is it the modern church? It's both. It's yes. It's the global church. It applies as much as uh, it did to the, the churches in Asia Minor as it does for us today here in um, Atlanta, Georgia in 2021. And that has two, two immediate um, implications. On the one hand, that's awesome, right? That's great. Uh, this is now a really a book worth studying for us and expositing because it does speak to us. It speaks to the, the modern-day college student, the modern-day software engineer, the modern-day husband and wife, father, mother, sibling, child. This speaks to all of us. Okay, so we have a good reason to carefully study this and apply this to our lives because we're part of the audience. On the other hand, we also have to be careful and not get too carried away with the fact that we are part of the audience. Um, Because even though we are included as an audience, that doesn't mean we get to interpret it however we want according to our our cultural symbols and illusions. Uh, We have to to still stick to the boundaries and the borders established by Scripture and understand this book. I mean, we only got to this point about how we are part of the audience 
as we interpreted the number seven according to the Bible and not according to our cultural understanding, right? Because number seven can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. But we, we came to this point through the scriptures, and so it would be wrong of us then to go from here and say, I got it from here. <laughs> I'm going to go about interpreting the rest of this book the way I see fit. No, we have to interpret scripture and this book from start to finish according to scripture. So on the one hand, we celebrate that this is for us. This is intended for us. We are part of the audience. On the other hand, at the same time, we have to understand the key to interpreting it is found in scripture and not culture. That's the first point. We're part of the audience. Here's the second point. Um, We also learned something very important here about God and more specifically, what his will for us is. And this is the this is going to be the the main main point for today. So take a look at verses four and five. It says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Okay. This is one of the most explicit passages in the Bible that talks about the Trinity, the Triune God. Um, the, word, the word Trinity never appears in the Bible, but there are passages like this that make that very clear to us, that God is three persons in one. And uh, here we have the one who is and who was and who is to come, that's referring to the Father. He was uh, there in creation. He is over all things now, and he will come to reclaim what is his. Now, the seven spirits, that's the one that throws people off a little bit, right? Because if, if that's the spirit and there's seven of them, that's not a triune God. That's, that's, like, that's not three persons in one God. That's, if I'm doing my math correct, that's nine persons in one God, right? Here, notice, this is the second time the number seven is appearing, isn't it? Right? This is the second time that John is using the number seven. And again, it represents fullness. This is the fullness of God's spirit. Uh, this is done before. In, in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah uses seven lamps, seven lamps as a symbol that represents the one Holy Spirit. Okay. So this is a literary device that, again, um, ancient Christians, Jewish Christians would have been familiar with that. It's foreign to us because we would not use two different numbers to refer to one thing. Who does that? Well, they do that, and we have to understand is according to their according to their culture and literary device. Uh, seven here is a metaphorical number representing fullness. And here it's the fullness of God's spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And uh, Jesus Christ, right? That, that's pretty explicit. He's the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And that's a reference to how uh, Christ makes his people God's new creation by being the firstborn of that new creation, the first to enter death and come back to life. And that doesn't mean somehow he had one, at one point not existed because he was you know, firstborn. This is, from our perspective, him being our big brother representative who ushers in this new creation, new humanity, and he is the firstborn. We follow suit, um, and, and as we, if we are united to him, um, the, way that he, the way that he experienced glorification and resurrection is how we will experience them as well. So there's a triune God. What does this mean? What is, this, what is all this amounting to it? Why is this important for us? It's because of these five words in verse 4. 
Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The triune God has this to offer the church. Grace to you, and through that grace, peace. According to the Bible, grace and peace are not abstract concepts, um, nice-sounding words you throw on like a Christian greeting card, but they are God's very own miraculous, divine gifts to his people. They are his highest gifts to his people. Grace, and through grace, peace. They are, if you, especially if you think, consider who is the recipient of this gift, we see how, how high these gifts are, how great these gifts are. These gifts are given to his creation gone rogue. These gifts are given to those who have disregarded and ignored and rebelled and disobeyed their creator. These are given to creatures who have terrorized creation by living according to their own definition of good and what's pleasurable. God's gift to them is grace, and through grace, peace, peace with him. And if you think about even in um, human relational terms, isn't it true that to offer true grace to, to an enemy and then to bring peace to something that was once so broken is nothing short of miraculous. There is no 12-step program to grace and peace. It's nothing short of a miracle. And this is why you will not turn on breaking news and find today sighting of grace and peace. It's, it's almost like a UFO sighting. <laughs> That's how rare this is. It's, all, it's, it's a mythical thing. Why is, it, why is this so rare? Anecdotally, experientially, why is this so rare? Because it's divine. Grace and peace are not earthly things. They're heavenly things. We are not to expect somehow to just bump into grace and peace when we walk down the street or enter into a human relationship. These are gifts from heaven. Gifts that the triune God himself, from everlasting to everlasting, worked at producing for you and me. These are not small things. They're from the triune God. Now, okay, pause here for a moment and uh, remember the context of the, the early church as well. Okay, the churches are suffering severe persecution. Everything from physical persecution to political persecution to cultural persecution, social persecution, they're suffering it all okay, under the Roman Empire, under Caesar. And then one day, as they're having church, probably somewhere secretive, um, so they can worship without being arrested, they get a letter from the Apostle John. Wow. Right? Imagine, for today's sermon, <laughs> I'm just going to open up the Apostle John's letter to you, <laughs> right? How encouraging that would be for the church. God is about to speak to us something so revolutionary, so life-changing, paradigm-shifting, That's this is going to change our lives because this is directly from God. It's going to so rejuvenate us 
that all of our present suffering and trial will seem small compared to what God is about to offer us. Right? That would be the, the mindset going in, wouldn't it? A letter from the apostle, the, the beloved disciple of Christ himself. Okay. And you open up the letter. And imagine how they would have responded, how you might respond if all you had were grace to you and peace. My guess is, as, as they heard this, this extravagant opening with, here's the Father and the Spirit and the Son, and he's giving you, and comes grace to you and peace. I, I, I'm pretty sure, my guess would be, there were some in that audience who were going, but why? Why grace? We have grace. We, we have that already, God. What we need right now is safety, security, maybe physical health, maybe money. Or even if we think beyond my immediate needs, we need political reform. We need a regime change. We need institutions and governments that follow biblical principles. We need more tangible things like that. Because that's where peace comes from, isn't it? We have grace. We got grace. We need strength. We need power. I think that could have been some of their response. And honestly, I think that would have been my initial response. I don't need more grace, God. I have that. I need more power. Well, here's God from the very opening greeting alone, showing us his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Because God's first and primary diagnosis here is not what is wrong out there. With politics, with wars, with pandemics, with earthquakes, his primary diagnosis here, coming straight from the triune God himself, is what is wrong in here and the cure that we need for this thing called heart. And the thing that he says that truly brings us peace is not changes out there in the world, in world circumstances, but it's the grace that comes from God, comes from heaven, that transforms the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The grace that tells us, no matter what is going on out there, how distressing things are out there, if God is with me, it is well. If I have his grace, he is on my side. If I have his grace, then he is for me and nothing can be against me. And he says, that's the peace I'm giving you. There's nothing here about, hey, just you wait and see what I'm going to do to Caesar, how I'm going to force him down from the throne. Just watch. I'm going to turn the Roman Empire into a Christian empire. I'm going to Christianize the nation. There's nothing of that sort here in the scriptures. That's not the promise. God is talking about our stepping down from our throne the throne of our own hearts, the regime change on the inside. 
where we have propped ourselves up as the emperor and the ruler of our lives. And he says, you need to step down from that. That's the change I'm bringing to you first and foremost. That's my will for you. And that's his will for us then, to the early church, first century Christians, and to us today. It's the same. This is what God's want for us, what God wants for us first and foremost. Just the other day, I was listening to uh, a Christian counselor named Diane Langberg, Dr. Diane Langberg, who's an incredible counselor, been doing this for decades, longer than I've been alive, and she's counseled people inside the church, outside the church, and there's probably not an issue that she has not dealt with. You can think of the ugliest issue there is, she would have counseled it. She says something during a conference that really captured for me this grace versus power dynamic that we see here. And the way she captures it is by separating Christianity from what she calls Christendom. Christianity versus Christendom. Here's here's the quote. Christendom has used scripture in the past to support or conceal slavery, racism, domestic violence, and many other cruelties that our God hates. I fear Christendom today has become less interested in truth and more interested in power. We have acquired fame and money, status, reputation, and little kingdoms. And at the same time, if you look at the stats, we, as in the church, are steeped in pornography. Marriages are failing in large numbers. The next generation is turning away from the church. We tolerate leaders in our organization and pulpits who feed off the sheep because we want to save the institution. There have been a lot of headlines, not in the far past, but recent, about Christian leaders and systems that look nothing like our Lord. Christendom is not Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived. I think I can hear very much the same message being echoed in John's greeting in, 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 in the passage we just read today. Grace to you and peace. Do not be deceived that you can ever graduate from your need of that. Grace to you and peace. That's Christianity. Power and security, that's Christendom. From the greeting alone, we find what God wants more for us today is our hunger for grace, not hunger more for more power. And don't get me wrong, God, is, God cares about the material world. He, he, he is bringing a new government. He is bringing a whole new kingdom where Christ is king. He cares about redeeming the broken world. He will renew it and bring, the, bring in the, the new heavens and the new earth. But in God's mind, that does not take priority over the gospel of grace that gets you into that kingdom. What good is it if you devote all of your life to creating a better world that you don't get to take part of? And how do you take part of it? By grace. And grace alone.
not by works. So he talks to us primarily about the grace we need for the heart change we need, and the dethroning of ourselves from our own lives. And in a world where everything fails, everything we create, recreate, uh, we, we stabilize and then it becomes destabilized and we stabilize again, all of that will fall apart. Everything becomes destabilized and turns violent. In such a world, what we need is not, let's try harder with more power. What we need is the grace of God that says, I'm bringing in the new world, and I'll invite you to be a part of it. Let that give you peace. What is God's will for us? Turn to his grace, and in his grace, find your peace. You will never outgrow your need for grace. You will never outgrow your need for the peace of God to reign in your heart. No amount of power, no amount of temporary stability you see around the world will give you the peace that only God can give you. Because deep down we know everything on this side of heaven falls apart. Everything on this side of heaven breaks. And we don't look for the evidence of the kingdom of God Therefore, in the things that break, we look for that evidence in the person of Jesus Christ who died and rose again and who says, I am the one who is coming. Just as I was, I am, I am soon to come. He's the one we turn to. For the grace we need to be made right with God and the peace we need to know, I will be with him forever in his kingdom. Okay, the last point is, is related to that. There's also something here, important here about how we are then to live in the here and now. Because realizing that God's priority is our heart change doesn't somehow detach us from living in the here and now. It actually sends us into it further. Here's what it says in verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, this is another allusion uh, to Exodus 19, 6. And there are a lot of these allusions. That's why sometimes it's very difficult to read Revelation. This is alluding to Exodus 19, 6, where it says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that was God speaking to the nation of Israel or as he was establishing the nation of Israel. You're going to be set apart from me and set apart from all the neighboring, neighboring nations and their idols and their gods, and you're going to show them who I am and, and how to live according to my will. You will be a priest unto me. And the Apostle John, now speaking to the church, the church says the same thing as if, we are now the fulfillment. The church is the fulfillment of that promise in Exodus. We're not two different people. We're the same. The New Testament church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament people of God, not a separate entity. We get to fulfill this promise. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means now this is our agenda. Now this is our mission. We're called to be God's priestly nation witnessing to God's light 
in the darkness, in the here and now. Okay, well, that sounds pretty daunting. Right? I'm, I feel like I'm barely a flicker in the dark sometimes. Right? How am I to be God's light to the world? And the Israelites had the same problem, didn't they? Right? Time and time again, what would happen to their worship? What would happen to their, to their temple? Their, their faith became destabilized, just like the world. And that's why the Son of God became man. He came to be the light of the world that we could never be. He came to make a way for humanity to be made right with God, reconciled to him, have peace with him through his grace, his gift of grace. And so if we, if we put our trust in him and come to him and receive him as our high priest, we can enter into his priesthood, enter into his life, his death, his resurrection represented in our baptism into his name. That means living for the glory of God and living, for, living as his priest in the here and now doesn't mean we nail everything perfectly. It means we do it as we worship Christ, who did it perfectly for us. We now have all the right reasons to believe we can actually live out our lives as priests in God's kingdom, representing him, living for his will, glorifying him. And just as the world is, is incomplete and broken, but God promises to renew it, and we do see signs of that. We do see signs of material change and societal change as there's more salt and light being, being produced in the world. Our character as well, our character as well will go through a gradual transformation until the day that it comes to a full, complete wholeness. Our character is in the already not yet phase. We're already made, as it says here in the verse, we're made a kingdom of priests. It's past, it's done. And yet, we're also growing into it because we're not yet fully that thing. And that's our goal in the here and now. Not to become priests, but to realize how we are already priests and to live out that reality. Verse 7 talks about this final complete picture of God's kingdom coming down to earth and opening its doors to all who live on the earth as that kingdom's priests. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, meaning repenting. Even so, amen. And, and here you have the first part of the verse talking about the, this God coming with the clouds, everyone seeing him, being an allusion to Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes down in the cloud of heavens and all the earth sees him. And then the second part where it says, even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth, that's alluding to Zechariah 12 where it talks about the end time victory of Israel, the, the true people of God as they repent before the Lord, whom they have pierced. So here you have John putting together Daniel's prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy, into one prophecy fulfilled in the last days through you and me, through us. As Paul says to the Galatians, you are Israel of God. Or as Paul says in Romans, a, a Jew is not Jew inwardly, but not outwardly, but inwardly, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
this is not just some random Old Testament story that the, the, this New Testament author is making some vague reference to. This is, this is here to say, this is who you are. This is your story. This is my story. We are true Israel of God in the here and now, having exodus and nearing the promised land. This is not also just an invitation to live a better moral life so you appear godly and God will bless you for it. This is an invitation to be part of an offspring of Abraham. Kingdom of priests. To be blessed so you can be a blessing to others. Bringing reconciliation to the world. Bringing grace to the world. So that as people see you, they, they, they have these grace sightings. Something heavenly. Bringing sacrificial service to the world. That's being a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests that is set apart from the world, that preaches a different message, a different gospel. Not of sacrifice, but of taking, of entitlement and consumerism. Not of laying down one's life for your neighbor, but stepping on top of them to gain another step on the ladder. Be a kingdom of priests now, so that when that kingdom comes, you'll be welcomed in. This is not how we earn entrance into the kingdom. This is how we know Christ has earned it for us. It's by living out this priesthood of Christ in the present, or in the very here and now. When you're at school, consider how you can be a priest in the priesthood of Christ. In your marriage, consider how you can be a priest in the priesthood of Christ. In your workplace, how can you be a priest in the priesthood of Christ? In your parenting, how are you being a priest in the priesthood of Christ? When people encounter you, are they encountering Christ, his grace, and his peace? And know that they can encounter Christ's grace and peace, not just through your good works, but more so through, through the ways that you fail and confess and repent and rejoice. Christ makes that possible for us. So what are we to do now? As we consider the future coming kingdoms, does that somehow detach us from the here and now? No, it sends us further into it, empowers us more to live with hope in a hopeless world, to live with grace in a very ungracious world, and to live with peace where everything seems to be falling apart. The more you reflect on and meditate and remember the coming kingdom of God, the more sanity you have for the here and now, not less. What drives us insane is when all you have is the present. And that's all you got. That's all the data you have. That's when we go a little crazy. And if I am focusing just even in the very minuscule like model picture in my life where I'm sitting in front of my toddler who is crying and defiant because she would not finish her broccolis, if I focus on that present moment alone, right, that's what drives me a little crazy. <laughs> but if I can somehow see my presence in her life as a, as a long-term priesthood on her behalf, 
then maybe that moment I can be a bit more gracious. So in verse 8, when we hold on to this, this voice saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, meaning the first and the last, the summation of all of existence and all of history, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, that makes us go, yes, God, come quickly. Because I live for you. You're the one who gives me the sanity to live in the here and now. Come quickly, Lord. You who hold all of history in your hands. You who is, who was, and who is to come. You who are the Almighty. I'm living for you. And you're all I need. You're all that I need. This is God's will for us. May we live in that calling and that reality today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we confess before you our, our challenge in looking inward and seeing the things that you see and turning to you for the peace that only you can provide us. And like the Israelites who turned to their neighboring nations who wanted to compete for more power to give them peace. Lord, we confess, we do that. We turn to our neighboring idols, whether that's power, whether that's money, or relationships. We, we turn to the things that the world turns to, and, and we become all the more restless for it because, Lord, on this side of heaven, things do fall apart. Help us to hear your better, more reassuring, and trustworthy voice inviting us to encounter you, the God of grace, and the peace that only you can provide. And as we rest in that peace, as we rest in your grace, fill our lives with a renewed sense of purpose and meaning as we go and live and, to, and, and be your priests to our neighbors, to our family members, even to our enemies. Help us to live in this way, the way that Christ had lived. And even when we fail to, help us to lean on his grace that furthers us in this journey, matures us in that direction. Lord, we look to your Son, the Almighty, who, can, who can, alone can do what he promised to do in us, to make us his, his kingdom of priests. And we ask all of this in his mighty, merciful name. Amen.